Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for our National Health Program. And we're proud to be a community partner here at Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5, forwardradio.org. We're recording today's show on December the 14th, 16th, uh, 2020. And uh, just to let folks know, the views and opinions expressed here on single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. And um, unfortunately, the peace and justice community has lost another powerhouse. Sister Miriam Corcoran was an ever-present advocate supporting peace and just public policy. Sister Miriam came on my radar about 20 years ago through the answering machine attached to my landline, if you remember those. I'd written a letter to the courier, and Sister Miriam approved. I, I guess she had just looked up, looked my phone number up in the phone book and gave me a call. Her soft-spoken voice greeted me and thanked me, and friends shared similar calls from Sister Miriam. Uh, John Wilbur, Wilburn, uh, after he or I would uh, get a letter in, we'd call each other and ask, have you heard from Sister Miriam yet? It was a real joy to finally meet her in person, and every time I'd see her at a protest or an LPAC get-together, it was, it was uh, a real pleasure. What a force. Thank you, Sister Miriam, for your work and your kindness. Just a uh, couple notes. Um, today, hopefully, the um, Congress will begin passing the next uh, phase of the uh, coronavirus relief package. Uh, and also, wanted to thank the Courier for their current series uh, highlighting racial disparities. Uh, yesterday, they did a, a really a great job on uh, highlighting some personal stories of the unequal access to care. Okay, Mike, what do we got going today? Well, uh, we're going to talk about rural health today, but before we do, let me, um, let me make the usual disclaimer that uh, any views that I express today will uh, represent my personal views and don't represent the views of either the Department of Surgery uh, or the University of Louisville. Uh, same. Um, my views do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital, nor are the views of the University of Louisville or Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So today we're going to talk about rural health, and um, I mean, uh, as a <laughs> as a starter, um, my, uh, most uh, aside from having had three two-month rotations at the Peninsula General Hospital in Salisbury, Maryland, when I was a resident back in the 1960s. Um, this uh, pales in comparison to Gene Shively's experience of having been a practicing general surgeon in uh, Campbellsville for 30 or 40 years. So we're going to be relying heavily 
uh, on Gene's uh, background and experience and views. Uh, let me begin with a, a little uh, historical note, and then uh, we'll we'll get into the get into the details here. Uh, 1946, the uh, Hilburton Act was passed by Congress. Uh, this provided funding in the form of grants and guaranteeing loans uh, to public and not nonprofit rural hospital and healthcare facilities as to be used for construction uh, and modernization. And the result was a, a significant increase in the number of rural hospitals, uh, and, and many of these are in the South. Uh, in return, these facilities were expected to provide care for those living in the, uh, make services available for those living in the area and provide some care uh, to those unable to pay. So, that was a different time in this country. Um, we'd just gone through a 10-year uh, depression, <clears throat> a four-year World War II, and we're in the process of reconstructing uh, Europe uh, with the Marshall Plan. And there was a sense in this country that the government had some uh, responsibility for the welfare of its citizens. And uh, at least in my view, I, this, I, this began to change in the 1980s. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier. Gene seems to think it happened earlier, started happened earlier. And rural hospitals started closing. Um, Hilburton funding ended in 1997. And uh, there was the beginning of this belief that uh, the government need to get out of people's lives, which was kind of the result of the mess we're in today. And that was back in those days of, of trickle-down economics, where uh, taxes were being reduced for uh, the rich, because there was a view that the rich were paying too many taxes, and hopefully a few crumbs would uh, trickle down to the rest of the crabs in the bottom of the barrel. So Gene... Uh, <clears throat> Um, as far as I, what I'm reading is that 20, 25 percent of hospitals are at the risk of closing, and lots of them are are closing. So, what, why, why, why are the hospitals closing, and why are these 25 percent of rural hospitals at risk of closing today? Well, I think it's because of decreased uh, reimbursement, and. Um, to some extent, decreased uh, patience and uh, lack of access. For example, uh, if I, I'm a general surgeon, and if I had a patient who required surgery, and uh, after they recovered from their surgery, if I tried to get a patient in to see a primary care physician, it was very difficult to uh, get a Medicaid patient to be seen by a primary care physician because the lack of uh, of reimbursement and a primary care physician would only uh, take so many because of uh, economics. They didn't want to uh, uh, bankrupt their their own practice. So we ha we have this problem in uh, uh, rural America of uh, uh, a lot of patients who go in and out of the emergency room, don't have uh, primary care physicians, 
and they bounce in and out from one crisis to another, and we don't have continuity of care. There are a lot of other things that uh, happen in rural America that makes it difficult. For example, the income in rural America is lower than it is in most uh, urban areas. We have a lot of chronic uh, uh, health conditions, for example, uh, uh, hypertension, uh, diabetes, obesity, cigarette smoking. Uh, lots more Kentuckians in rural America smoke than they do in urban uh, Kentucky. Uh, and so if you combine all these illnesses together, we have a lot of chronic illnesses, and a lot of those patients uh, don't uh, have primary care physicians, and they don't uh, get treated for it. Uh, there's also a problem with transportation. One of the things that our hospital has done is they've provided a van which will pick, out, pick up patients in our county and the surrounding counties and bring them in uh, for appointments, for tests, uh, uh, wound care clinic, and the cancer center. And this has been a really great asset uh, for our area in, uh, in South Central Kentucky. We're the only one of uh, two hospitals in the United States that provides that service. And we have a fundraiser every year that uh, brings in enough money to buy new vans, and we have sponsors for the vans. And it's worked out uh, extremely well. Uh, Gene, uh, it's my understanding with the with the funding issue that uh, uh, basically most of the rural population are either on Medicare and Medicaid. Is that a fair statement as opposed to ha having uh, a broader insurance uh, uh, availability, health insurance availability in urban and suburban areas? That's true. In our hospital, 73% of the patients are Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and so we only have uh, about a, a third of the patients with private insurance. And if you look at the finances of most hospitals, the uh, private insurance pays uh, for not only the cost but the profit margins of both non-for-profit and for-profit hospitals. Now, if you go into eastern Kentucky, you'll have more than 90% uh, of the patients being uh, insured with Medicare and Medicaid. And so uh, th it's very, very hard to meet your cost. If you're in an urban area, uh, for example, uh, eastern Jefferson County, where most of the patients are uh, under private insurance, uh, then they can uh, uh, meet the cost of the hospital and have some profit so that they can reinvest that money into uh, other things. But rural hospitals can't do that because they're constricted. Now, it's interesting uh, with the Medicaid expansion, well, it's made great success. If you look throughout the United States, the hospitals and, and states who have not done well are the states who have not expanded uh, Medicaid. For example, there have been 20 hospitals in Texas who've closed in the last year or two, 
and this is a state that did not expand Medicaid. And I know there's actually been some deaths uh, in Texas uh, because of a lack of care and lack of availability uh, for hospitals. Uh, you know, Texas is a big state, and driving 60 miles is nothing in Texas. But if you're uh, critically ill, uh, 60 miles may be a long distance. Uh, and uh, even with a helicopter ride, it may be a critical uh, significance. The University of Kentucky and University of Louisville have both done studies that showed that Medicaid expansion has increased uh, the, uh, uh, the availability, for example, uh, uh, screening mammography. Uh, they have evidence that if, if you have insurance, even though it's Medicaid, that more people get mammograms, cancer is detected earlier, and uh, patients are treated earlier, and there are less, less deaths. There's less morbidity and less mortality. Same thing is true uh, for uh, colonoscopy. Uh, there's been a study that was just published last year that shows that if you have colonoscopy uh, earlier, you could get polyps diagnosed earlier, you get cancer diagnosed earlier, and the morbidity is decreased and the mortality is decreased. And they compared the difference between Medicaid expansion and before they had Medicaid expansion, and there was a big difference. So Medicaid expansion and the uh, ACA has made a significant uh, difference in uh, uh, rural Kentucky and rural America as long as the states have expanded it. We've done pretty well here in Kentucky with the expansion of Medicaid with the Bashir governor number one. And uh, uh, the, the information that I've seen about uh, the states with the most hospital, rural hospital closures are Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama, and Missouri. And these are all states in, with, that refuse to expand Medicaid. Right. There's also been a problem in Appalachia. And uh, I don't mean just Appalachia and Kentucky. Uh, Appalachia and Kentucky has done better because of Medicaid expansion, but the states in Appalachia, like uh, North uh, Carolina, uh, t uh, Tennessee, et cetera, who did not expand uh, Medicaid, uh, then uh, had uh, uh, problems and also had increased hospitals that were closing. So who, who makes the decision? So they, I mean, the hospitals that have been closed, there's been some... The hospitals closed in in in, uh, in Appalachian Kentucky. Uh, how, do you have a sense of how the is it uh, is it the investors that that are closing the hospitals because they're not making enough money? Is the the local board of uh, the community closing the hospital because it they don't want to want to pay for its upkeep who's who's who or is it I, I i'm assuming it's probably not just one thing but <clears throat> who's making the decisions to close the hospitals that's something i've never been really clear about it's usually because of finances uh, uh they just can't stay open because they don't have the income um uh, 
And there's several things that uh, the local board of trustees uh, can do, I think, uh, to uh, prevent uh, hospital closures. Uh, for example, uh, our hospital is a taxing district. It's a hospital district, and so they can levy property tax. So that helps. Uh, we get a, like a million dollars of tax revenue a year. And they also have a unique system that if you go to the hospital and let's say you got a bill for $500 that's not covered by insurance, you can take that bill in and uh, the hospital will write off your taxes. Let's say you've paid $300 worth of uh, uh, taxes, then that's written off and then you only owe $200. And I think that's a unique system, not only for the hospital, uh, but for the patients. There are other things that affect uh, hospitals. For example, uh, the wage index uh, law. This is a very complicated law. I spent a lot of time trying to understand it, but each uh, district, each county has a, their own wage index. For example, the wage index in Jefferson County is going to be higher than it is in Taylor County, but the reimbursement for patients is based on a wage index because our wage index is lower than in other counties, then we get reimbursed lower. I think Congress needs to change that. So if you have an appendectomy in Jefferson County, you should get paid the same in uh, Taylor County. Uh, and, and that would help the hospitals. One of the other things that rural hospitals can do is outpatient pharmacy. Uh, we've only recently started doing that, uh, but we can bring in revenue. One of the arguments against that is we'll be competing against pharmacies in the community. Well, you've got to decide which is more important. Do you got to have a hospital? If you don't have a hospital and you don't attract physicians, you're not going to have anybody writing prescriptions. So far, our outpatient pharmacy has done well, and we're uh, making uh, money. Uh, uh, the other things that that can be done is the system called 340B uh, pharmacy. Uh, almost all hospitals that take care of charity patients sign up with 340B. It's a very complex law, but essentially is it doesn't cost the taxpayers any money, and uh, the uh, the insurance companies reimburses. The same amount, but there's a discount, and but the government doesn't have to pay that. Let me just give you an example. When I was practicing, I was in an office. Even though it was connected to the hospital, it wasn't considered part of the hospital. And But my wife was in the hospital. Uh, she was running a wound care uh, office, and she was a nurse practitioner. So uh, if I had an expensive drug, uh, there's a drug that uh, we, we frequently use for MRSA that's very expensive. It might be uh, $700 for a prescription. I could call over and I'd say, Susan, can you write this prescription for this patient? Well, the patient may only have to pay $10. The hospital still got reimbursed uh, for the drug, and uh, uh, it was a win-win for everyone. We're trying to increase the 340B uh, pharmacy. Uh, better 
correlation between the board of trustees and uh, the medical staff and uh, the administration. I think all hospitals and all board of trustees have problems with uh, uh, correlating uh, their thoughts and working together as a team, uh, fundraising, providing transportation, uh, trying to increase private insurance. These are some of the things that rural hospitals can do uh, to uh, increase their income and increase uh, the importance in the, in, the, in the county. Now, one of the things that uh, we rarely talk about is how important a hospital is to a county. For example, uh, Taylor Regional Hospital is the second largest employer in, uh, in Taylor County. We employ uh, over 700 uh, people. The greatest, the biggest employer is Amazon. We have one of the first warehouses that Amazon had. <coughs> so it's, there's a lot of income that we generate. That increases the taxes. It increases the spending power, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I, when I was a resident, uh, <coughs> uh, and had taken a rotation down at the Peninsula General Hospital in Salisbury, Maryland. I think we talked about this a little bit on, a, on an earlier program. Um, a couple of surgeons took me duck hunting one, um, one morning. We got up at some god-awful hour and drove out to duck blind and sat around. And um, it wasn't a terribly rewarding experience in terms of of getting any ducks, but um, as we sat around there sipping uh, <laughs> some alcoholic beverages, <laughs> waiting for the sun to come up, uh, one of the surgeons, he, he was explaining to me exactly the same thing. Uh, uh, the value of, of this hospital as a, a community a economic asset, and, uh, and again, it had to do with not just having physicians and nurses, laboratory technicians, respiratory therapists working, uh, the people who worked in the cafeterias, uh, the custodial people. Uh, somebody had to take the garbage out, uh, collect the garbage. They bought food from the community. And, and the other, what he indicated was a really important uh, component of the attractiveness of the community it was at that time in Salisbury, Maryland, uh, <clears throat> the presence of this hospital uh, was a major uh, uh, component of attracting uh, another, the second largest employer. There's a place called, there was a company called Wayne Pump. Now, I have no idea what Wayne Pump does, but th the presence of the Peninsula General Hospital was a reason why they were able to attract this uh, very large um, employer to to the community and uh, so there's a lot of spin-offs to having uh, a hospital in a rural community and on the other side of the coin all of that revenue uh, the, the direct revenue of the hospital activity itself and the salaries that are paid to the employees and all of the spin-off activities of selling food and, and garbage collection and things like that go away. And in addition to that, if you're trying to attract a widget 
factory to the uh, a rural community and the next the nearest hospital is 50 or 60 miles away why why would they go there they'll you know go to wherever the rural hospital is so well it seems like instead of trying to keep hospitals open to uh for the economic development of communities they allow them to close and it's like they want to promote private prison uh, building in their communities, which, you know, just seems upside down um, on that. And, Gene, I had a question. Uh, one of the closure, hospital closures, was that up around the Ashland area? Yes. Well, when a, a hospital like that closes on our side of within Kentucky, and Medicaid patients um, need care, do they go to Huntington? I mean, our Medicaid program isn't going to, does that payment go to West Virginia or West Virginia eats that at their facilities? Uh, there's another hospital in Ashland okay. which absorbs most of those patients. Okay. There are patients who go to Huntington, and I don't know the status of uh, Medicaid patients going out of state. That's something that uh, we need to look into. Well, and a, a single-payer system for everyone would eliminate yes, those, those, uh, question about those questions. All, all that stuff would go away. Well, Gene, let's go back to this sort of who decides who closes the hospitals and kind of come at it from a, a little different perspective. Uh, as you know, in Louisville, there are no for-profits. Uh, with Columbia HCA and Humana uh, both no longer running University Hospital, which was not a pretty sight when it happened. Um, uh, so you've got basically three nonprofits, uh, uh, Baptist, uh, Norton's, and the university system, which has taken over the, the, Jewish, the Jewish system. So out in rural America or rural Kentucky, do you have a sense of what percentage of of the hospitals are are not for profit, and and what percentage of hospitals are run by by management companies that are that are for profit? I don't or know. Investor owned. I don't know the exact number. Uh, I can tell you that most of them are not for profit. There are a few hospitals like ours, which is a. Uh, uh, a taxing district, a, a healthcare district. Uh, one of those hospitals essentially closed uh, just 20 miles from us, and that hospital was taken over by another non-for-profit. There is a, uh, a for-profit hospital that's uh, 20 miles from us north in Lebanon, Kentucky. Uh, they are for-profit. Uh, and they were that company has a lot of uh, rural hospitals throughout the United States. They also have several uh, hospitals in the state of uh, Kentucky. Uh, one of the hospitals is a fairly large hospital in Somerset. Uh, to my knowledge, those hospitals are doing, doing fairly well. The one in Somerset um, has done extremely well. Uh, they, they have some specialty hospitals uh, 
that's scattered throughout the states by specialty. I mean hospitals that take long-term care patients, patients that are on ventilators. They have some uh, psych, uh, some hospitals that have psych units, uh, those kind of things. Uh, to my knowledge, none of those hospitals have closed. Uh, they run a very tight budget, and they emphasize outpatient uh, procedures. One of the secrets to keeping a small hospital open is you have to change from emphasis on inpatient to outpatient. And that's one of the things that most rural hospitals are going to have to do is to emphasize uh, uh, outpatient. The critical access hospitals get paid their cost plus a little bit. Uh, most of those, to my knowledge, are doing uh, fairly well. Uh, there's one that's 11 miles from us who has a niche in that they take care of chronic uh, patients who are on ventilators. They, um, patients who have, for example, traumatic brain injuries, uh, patients with ALS, uh, patients with um, muscular dystrophy, who have trachs, who are on ventilators, they specialize in taking care of those patients and the state pays for that. And so that's one of the ways that these hospitals uh, stay open. Now, when I uh, watch the news or listen to the news in the morning when I'm shaving or read the paper, and you, you look at some of the issues uh, in this country with the pandemic, uh, it, it seems to be that the rural hospitals are really getting slammed because they don't have the capacity to deal with uh, the, the uh, influx of, of seriously ill patients, and they don't have the ability to move patients around. Now, Louisville uh, has really done a good job. The three uh, healthcare organizations, um, I, I don't think they thought this up themselves. This was under the guidance of the governor. Have, have worked out a system where they were moving patients out of nursing homes into specially designed wards so that they could keep the patients out of the nursing home and spread it around there until they got over and then they'd send them back. But they had a really good system of, of, of collaboration. So you get these three competing entities who, who for, for, for the short duration of however long this pandemic lasts have decided not to compete with each other but to collaborate with each other in 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 this ability to move patients around from one place to the other so they can relieve the stress on the nursing homes now i i don't see that happening i mean i, I was listening to something about the, some hospitals in north and south dakota which are just unbelievable so, um, I, so that kind of in a roundabout way leads me to the question of how, how are the rural hospitals, in, in your experience, dealing with this issue of one, the high patient load, dealing with the extra capacity of it, and do they have a process where they can, if they get overloaded, can they move patients, divert them somewhere, or, or you know, what happens with all that? Well, our hospital has some negative pressure units, and so we take care of COVID patients. 
if there are patients that uh, uh, the hospitalist or the ER doctor thinks is going to require a ventilator uh, in a short period of time, that they transfer to another hospital. Usually we can take care of patients on ventilators. Uh, over the years, there's been a trend, you know, to have uh, intensivists take care of those patients. Uh, I was trained as a general surgeon to take care of critically ill patients and ventilator patients, but the trend is away from that. Uh, we don't have a lot of general internists and hospitalists uh, who feel comfortable taking care of those kind of patients. So we have not had any problems that I'm aware of in transferring patients either to, uh, to Louisville or Lexington. But uh, you got to realize that uh, one of these days uh, uh, those hospitals may be on diversion. The University of Kentucky has been on diversion several times. Uh, University of Louisville uh, makes every effort to not be on diversion. Uh, they're dedicated to trauma care, and so uh, we can always get a patient in uh, to U of L, particularly if it's a trauma patient. Now, one of the things that's really helped us is have a close relationship with a tertiary care hospital. Uh, I've ha had a very close relationship with the Department of Surgery uh, for the last uh, 43 years. And if we have a patient who needs tertiary care, then we can j just call up someone. The University of Kentucky also uh, does the same thing. It used to be hard to get patients in the UK. Now it's very, very easy to call somebody in the UK. And you can have someone on the phone that you need to talk to in a few minutes, and most of the time they'll take the patient for us. This has been really beneficial uh, to us uh, in several areas, uh, particularly trauma, uh, uh, cancer care. Uh, we work back and forth uh, with uh, both U of L and UK. Uh, we now have an affiliation with the University of Kentucky. And so if we have a difficult patient that, uh, for example, needs a bone marrow transplant or needs a uh, uh, complex operation on the pancreas or a liver resection. Uh, we don't have any trouble getting those patients taken care of. We can do the chemotherapy at our cancer center, and so it's a good working relationship. It's a win-win for both institutions. Uh, the same thing is true for cardiology. We have two cardiologists who come from Jewish Hospital. They're in Campbellsville three days a week. They see the patients. They can even do caths in our hospital. If the patient needs coronary artery bypass or needs a stent, they're transferred up to Jewish and taken care of. And then the patient gets seen in follow-up back in Camelsville. This is a win-win situation for the tertiary hospital and the local hospital. And it's an economic advantage for both hospitals. Yeah, U of L and Norton's have both done, I think, a really good job. I mean, I'm going to get into all the details because it's, it's it's over my head, but they have they have been planning for this ahead of time. They've got capacity aside, and as I mentioned earlier, when they were moving patients out of nursing homes, they were some of them were moved into a 
a specific area that was a, basically a covert ward that was set up by Norton so that they could take them out of the nursing home, take care of their medical needs, and then when they got over it, they could send them back. And, and, and the U of L has also done a similar sort of thing in terms of, of establishing the excess uh, extra capacity so that they would be prepared to deal with those kinds of things if they started getting uh, those floods. And, uh, and I think they're, they're the, the capacity of hospitals, certainly in Louisville, from the standpoint of dealing with a COVID surge is, is good. And they haven't had to put up a field hospital down in Bowman Field or someplace. I've, I've just got a question. When you're moving patients back and forth from Campbellsville to Louisville, Louisville back, um, is a, oftentimes the patient is going to be stuck with that bill because it's not going to be covered by insurance. <coughs> well, this is particularly a... Uh, a uh, big problem uh, in helicopter transport. Oh, yeah. Uh, my grandson, about a year and a half ago, had a, a subdural hematoma. That means they had a blood clot between their skull and their brain. And he was transported by a helicopter up to Children's Hospital here in Louisville. And the bill was $51,000. Now, uh, the insurance paid for that. Uh, but if you don't have insurance, you're stuck, and <laughs> that's a real problem. Now, most of the patients we transfer uh, have a reason to be transferred. They're critically ill, or they have, need to see a specialist that we don't have. So uh, that's uh, most of the time that's paid for. We do have a, a problem with EMS, and I think most rural counties have a problem with EMS. They don't, uh, the EMS doesn't get adequately reimbursed. Uh, we, we have a limited number of, of ambulances, a limited number of personnel, and sometimes we don't have uh, ambulance available. That's true of, almost rural, uh, true of almost every rural county, and transportation uh, is a problem. It's very difficult to solve the problem. Um, we have been bailed out because we have a helicopter service and a helicopter station at our hospital. But uh, uh, nobody has adequately addressed the expense of that. I've been surprised that the insurance companies most of the time uh, pay for it. Now, there's another problem with rural health care. Fortunately, at Taylor Regional Hospital, we don't have this problem. But the biggest issue is you can have a hospital, but if you don't have the physicians, then uh, it's, it's kind of useless. About 20% of the people in America live in rural areas, but only about 10% of uh, physicians uh, live in rural areas. And the biggest needs uh, are in primary care, but also, it's extremely important to have a general surgeon. And I don't mean a general surgeon who does routine general surgery like they do here in Louisville, which means hernias, gallbladders, uh, ordinary things. You've got to have a general surgeon in a rural area who can do some subspecialty things. For example, gynecology. In some areas, they need to be able to do C-sections. 
uh, a minor orthopedics. When I first went in practice, we did not have an orthopedic surgeon, so I uh, pinned hips. I did a lot of orthopedics. I didn't do open uh, ankles or fe uh, femurs or things like that, but I knew what I could do and knew what I couldn't do. And so I, I ended up doing a lot of orthopedics, the GYN. Our hospital has been very fortunate that when I first went into practice if a year or two later, we had a urologist who was from the area. Uh, then we got an ENT who was from the area, and we had an OB who was from the area, and this has made a tremendous difference. And then we, in turn, have recruited other people, and so we've been able to maintain the basic specialty area and it's been a, a very fortunate. If you get into a critical access hospital, though, uh, particularly out west, where you may be 60 or 70 miles uh, from a, a tertiary care hospital, you've really got to have a general surgeon who can do broad-based general surgery. And unfortunately, uh, those kind of doctors are not being trained anymore. There are a few places still left in America that are training them, and you can manipulate your training uh, like I did and to try to uh, learn to do that. One of the most important things for a general surgeon in a small rural area is to be able to do endoscopy. That's almost a necessity. And when I was in training, I spent six extra months uh, doing endoscopy, uh, gynecology, and orthopedics. And so um, I, I had a broad training and then I had a close relationship with the Department of Surgery at UofL. So if I had a problem, then I could uh, call them up on the phone, discuss it, or, or refer the patient. And I think this is extremely important uh, for rural surgeons. Let's uh, kind of switch uh, direction just, just a little bit. Um, this country does not um, recognize or address rural health as a specific issue uh, other developed countries do and um, uh, I, I'm assuming that this has got to do with this fantasy idea that uh, the quote competitive medical marketplace unquote whatever that is will straighten out all of these issues which it obviously doesn't so just a couple of examples uh, in the United Kingdom, in Britain, the National Health Service provides all the resources, the ambulance services, the, the, the personnel, the providers in rural areas. They, they run everything. They do the pharmacies. They have to run the physician practices, um, the specialists, and they, they, they've got a system together that, takes, that specifically addresses the rural uh, parts of the country. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these are all countries that are very much like our country, countries that were, were uh, settled by European immigrants and who have uh, indigenous populations that weren't, weren't treated very well. Uh, they all have some kind of regional authority that, that addresses the issues of, of rural health. So a couple of examples. In Australia, the Australian Government Department of Health 
has a number of programs that provide health care to rural and remote areas of the country. They have a general practitioner programs that are specifically trained uh, primary care physicians to practice rural health as opposed to urban health. I'm not, I don't know what exactly what that means, but they do actually train people to 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 deal with the specific health issues that you would get in a remote uh, component part of Australia. Have a thing called a rural health outreach fund, which uh, which is uh, uh, some of these are, are are federal or central government and some some are regional government uh, and this 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 fund provides uh, for uh, delivery of, of primary care physicians to rural areas so they they get medical specialists nursing allied and and other health services to remote areas there's an australian college of remote and rural medicine in brisbane so they they actually have a college that trains people and healthcare providers to deal with uh, uh, the the issues of of healthcare in a remote area as a government responsibility. Uh, another quick example in New Zealand, the New Zealand Ministry of Health has a number of similar government programs that provide healthcare to rural areas: breast screening, oral health, mobile surgery. They they have these units that go out to rural communities and and they can fix hernias and I, I'm not exactly sure what all they do it's but they're obviously not doing liver transplants and, and lung resections but they they have these groups of surgeons that will go out to rural areas and and and, and do those do those sorts of things as part of the responsibility of the government I remember years ago when I came to uh, Came to Kentucky, um, uh, the, the surgeon who recruited me, a fellow named uh, uh, Condit Moore, and uh, a pathologist uh, uh, at the University of Louisville, Dr. Christofferson, these two guys had a van, and they were, they were taking their van out to Appalachia and uh, uh, doing pap smears on people in the communities out in Appalachia. I, I was wondering how they didn't get shot doing some of those things out there in the rural communities. But this was not a government. This was something that the two of them put together as, as part of the University of Louisville. Uh, again, and all these countries that do this have market economies, and these market economies... Uh, are not wrecked by having a few social programs. So uh, at some point in time, one would hope that this issue of rural health would be addressed in a, a similar sort of way instead of letting it, letting it be a haphazard patchwork of, of things happening that have to do with whatever local area is doing instead of having some kind of regional authority to manage it. Well, I, I, I think this is a really important area, and particularly in uh, primary care, we need training programs for primary care physicians who are going to rural areas. And this is particularly important uh, out west where you have a huge di distance uh, between communities and hospitals. And it's, and it's very important 
to have general surgeons who are trained who can take care of uh, problems, for example, uh, C-sections, and problems that general surgeons don't usually do in uh, urban areas. And it's, it's very difficult to get trained to do that, but we need to quit talking about it, and we need to start doing things about it. Actually, when I uh, went into practice, we were doing a much better job with uh, primary uh, care. When I first started practicing back in Camelsville, there were several uh, f family doctors who delivered babies, uh, who did C-sections, who did uh, tonsillectomies, etc. And they were really broad uh, trained. They and, and they knew what they could take care of and what they couldn't take care of. And this was true of the surrounding communities. But that has, has gone away. Uh, none of the family doctors uh, deliver babies. And obstetrics is a big issue. Approximately half of the uh, small rural hospitals do not deliver babies. That creates a big issue, particularly uh, out west where you may be 60 or 70 miles uh, from a tertiary care or even a secondary care hospitals that take care of uh, OB. Uh, one of the things that's evolved in Kentucky, and I assume this is going on other places, uh, and in several hospitals that I know about, uh, they have regional centers in obstetrics, and they have uh, obstetricians who uh, all they do is deliver babies and they work shifts. Well, I mean, I mean this is okay for the uh, uh, just getting babies delivered, but it, it, it destroys continuity of care. Uh, I understand why they do that, but I also think that uh, it, it creates a problem with continuity of care. You know, if you're pregnant, you see uh, maybe a nurse practitioner or you see somebody at the health department, and then you go into the hospital for your delivery. It's uh, delivered by someone you don't know, and then your postpartum care is done by someone you don't know. I, I don't like that idea, but that's being done. I know it's being done in, uh, in several uh, hospitals in the state of Kentucky. You know, we've talked about this issue in a number of different ways and a number of different aspects, but the fundamental issue here, and I don't think this is going to change until we get past this this uh, view or concept or philosophy of, of considering uh, health care a commodity as opposed to an essential public service. And those examples that I gave about uh, uh, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and you can go on and on, France, Italy, all, you know, all of these other countries, Norway, I spent some time in Norway with, when I was uh, when I was in the Navy doing NATO training exercises in northern Norway. And uh, I mean, all of these countries have health care systems. They have an existing system that is managed and regulated by the government. Uh, it not not necessarily all like the British Isles where it runs everything, but they run enough of it to 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 supervise the activity and make sure the activities are are 
or dealing with places, you know, the, the, like rural areas, which are just kind of left to their own devices today. Now, just just think about we we in this week we have watched uh, a remarkable um, situation of the development of multiple vaccines in a, a, a the the, the a shortest period of time one could imagine going through phase one, two, and three trials, phase three trials with uh, 30, 40,000 uh, patients, uh, 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 you know, randomized to getting a vaccine or getting a, getting a placebo. And um, this was done because it is a very well-coordinated Regulated research in this country is well well regulated, well coordinated, uh, and and the the companies uh, Moderna and Pfizer were able to accomplish this and get it done in in a so that it, it's good science because of the regulation. Uh, and and they they were subject to, to going through these steps, and then they have these data safety monitoring boards. These are independent groups of people who had nothing to do w with the companies that were putting the vaccines together. And I'm getting off track here, but my point is, this this remarkable activity was done because of a well-regulated system that had oversight in it. And our healthcare system doesn't doesn't provide that, and I, probably one of the worst examples of it is what's going on in rural America. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, this new science that's developing these new vaccines is just incredible. Uh, I, I, the, unless you're a physician, and even most physicians don't understand this. Um, I I don't understand it. I've tried to look at some of it, but some of the science behind this is just uh, uh, phenomenal. We uh, tend to badmouth the drug companies, and I do think they charge too much for some of their drugs. But what they've done with these vaccines is um, a really a scientific breakthrough. Yeah, but Gene, they've done it because they were they were. They were in an environment where they were heavily regulated, and they had to they had to do it by following the rules, not because of the, whatever way they wanted to do it. Right. And and that's why we ha why the information is good. The, the the effectiveness and the safety. There's a lot of issues about you know two people in the British Isles having a anaphylactic having anaphylactic reactions. Uh, you know, you know, this is the whether that is a just a random occurrence or whether it has something to do with the actual vaccine is kind of hard to tell. But they, you know, they've they've collected all this information. So anybody who's gonna who's got a history of of um, of those kind of allergies, somebody's going to be standing by with an EpiPen if they need it. Uh, quick. Quick little similar question, putting these two things together, the vaccines and rural health. 
Um, what is the capacity to deliver the vaccine out in the rural areas of Kentucky, in your opinion, when this gets there? Are they going to be able to, um, you know, set things up, have the freezer capacity to keep the vaccines from disintegrating or getting too warm? How's that going to work? Well, I just signed up to get vaccinated um, on Monday. and Our hospital has a system. And we will start vaccinating uh, our frontline workers in just a, a few weeks. Uh, we actually do have a system in order to keep the things super cool. Um, and I assume that other hospitals in the state are going to have that available. I don't know for sure. I know that Madisonville uh, will have it, and I'm sure that places like Bowling Green and Glasgow and other places will eventually get that. There will probably be some hospitals that won't have it available, um, and there may be uh, some people will have to drive to to uh, a pharmacy eventually in order to get their vaccination. But apparently uh, the governor's office has worked this out, and I think it's uh, so far it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. Now, one of the things that we've done that's been very helpful for us is that uh, we've had medical students rotating down over the years, and, and they get an idea of what rural practice is like. They do the same thing at Madisonville, at Moorhead, and several other communities throughout the state. And this has been a great help because we can recruit medical students. They like the idea of having a broad-based uh, practice. And some of the uh, uh, you know, students uh, like being in a rural area. Some of them like to fish and hunt, and they like that. One of our surgeons loves uh, to uh, fish and hunt, and uh, so he wouldn't go anywhere else. That, the, one of the other major factors, probably the number one factor in recruiting physicians is their spouse. And, there, and if you can get a, if you can either get them down there single and get them married to someone who lives there, or you can, if you can bring a spouse down who's from a small town. That is a big plus. All right, Gene, we're going to have to end on this happy note because uh, Mark, Mark, so Mark, Mark is waving, <laughs> waving the one-minute sign. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, uh, Gene, great insight. Uh, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, if, uh, if Beth and I separate, maybe I can uh, – do something down in Kansasville. <laughs> but uh, it, it is amazing as far as the science. But on the other side of the coin, uh, 60 Minutes did their, uh, had a segment on a hospital monopoly in Northern California where they imposed prices on their patients and insurance that it, it's 70% higher in Northern California where Sutter Healthcare owns and operates these hospitals than it is in Southern California. This so is this is still a lot of work to do. Yes, this is an example of a medical corporatocracy, and I think maybe we can put that on our list of something to talk about in, in the future. Yeah, this is a problem with uh, rural healthcare. If a 
big hospital company comes in and buys a rural hospital, you can create the same problem. Okay. Sorry, guys. Got to wrap it up here. Uh, Thanks again, everybody. Uh, Kentuckians for single-payer health care, kyhealthcare.org. If you'd like to contact uh, our chairperson, Kay Tillo, nurse, NPO, at aol.com. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, Happy holidays.